And if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 36. Continuing our reading through the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis chapter 36. Our reading will be verses 1 through 19. Lend your attention. This is God's word. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basamath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaiot. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basmath bore Ruel, and Oholibama bore Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau, who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wife, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basamath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Amar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nachath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Besamath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's sons, the chiefs Nachath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Besamath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibama, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Oholibama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom, and these are their chiefs. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. Our sermon text is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Lend your attention, this is God's word. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly 
to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer. Father, we ask that you would sanctify us by your truth. Uh, Your word is truth. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Uh, We marvel, Lord, that you have not entered into judgment with us, uh, that you have not visited the fullness of our sins upon us. Uh, You have not dealt with us as our iniquity deserves, Uh, but you set forth uh, Jesus Christ to stand in our stead And you have adorned all of our days with your loving kindness and tender mercy such that all things work for our good. These are the assurances that come to us from your word. Uh, Father, we ask that we might uh, be given the eyes to see, Lord, uh, the sin which clings to us and how utterly uh, out of keeping it is uh, with how we have been dealt with before you. Uh, Grant to us, O Lord, the eyes to see our cruelty, our propensity to devour and destroy one another. Lord, though you have not destroyed us, um, grant to us, O Lord, that we might run from such sin into the arms of Christ, whom you have set forth as a fountain of mercy, uh, to cleanse us and to lead us forth in paths of righteousness. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, Uh, We meet a man and a boy who are traveling through a world of great danger and great sadness. Uh, The world is covered in ash. And though there are only a few people left, many of them have become cruel, violent, and more vicious than animals. And the man teaches the boy how to live in this hard and difficult and in many ways nightmarish place. And then the man dies and only the boy remains facing a nightmare. And remarkably, a family finds him, a father who is good and trustworthy, a mother who is full of compassion and speaks to the boy of God. The relief that you feel for the boy is enormous. He has come by God's tender providence into a family of light in a world of darkness. Beloved, this is an excellent picture of the church in a world of woe. The Lord here reminds us that there is much that is dangerous in this world, but there is also much that is holy and precious. Elsewhere, he teaches saying, I'm sending you out as lambs, holy, precious, as lambs in the midst of wolves. And as such, you're going to need the prudence of serpents and the innocence of doves to walk in this world of woe. But tragically, the Lord also reminds us here 
The danger is not confined to outside the world, outside in the world. Tragically, even within the household of light, sin and pride are often just as destructive as wolves, dogs, and pigs, and yet somehow worse because it comes from friends. For what is worse is that the destruction oftentimes comes under the cloak of righteousness, care, concern, or that which is so called. If the Lord calls us to wisdom and innocence towards those without, he calls us to kindness and tenderness and compassion to those within for the simple and elegant reason that this is how God has dealt with you in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here he does this by highlighting the shameful opposite. He does this by highlighting our shameful tendency to rise up over and against one another in our cruelty veiled as concern, in our hypercritical and fault-seeking hearts levied towards one another. And he states in no uncertain terms, how dare you treat one of my holy and precious ones in such a swinish way. Beloved, this text comes for us all. This morning we consider discernment and judgment and how wrong-headed we are with reference to these two things. We're in need of one and the other is horrible. So consider with me first the need for true discernment. Second, the sin of judging Third, the danger of judging. And fourth, the cure for judging. First, the need for true discernment. This is really to say, let's start with verse six as a way to state what Jesus does not mean when he says, don't judge. Verse six says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Dogs were a common image of that which was vicious. This is not a household pet. This is a wild animal which would destroy. Similarly, pigs here are profiled not only as that which is unclean, but as that which is vicious as well. This is a difficult passage, partly because it's not obvious how it relates to the context. It seems best to understand Jesus' teaching in this verse our need for true discernment. To be able to discern what is a threat and to be able to discern what is holy and precious. D.A. Carson suggests that the call to love our enemies, the call not to judge, could be wrongly heard as a call to be undiscerning simpletons. to somehow hear the call to love our enemies might mistakenly be heard as the call not to perceive anything that could actually threaten or harm you. 
It's true that God does demonstrate love for the world in John 3.16. That's perhaps one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. In this way, God loved the world. In this way, God loved this hostile entity. But somehow we can hear that and mistakenly conclude that we're called to friendship with the world, which is explicitly forbidden us in James 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There's tension there. There's a need for nuance there. There's a need for understanding there. There's a way to comport ourselves in innocence and wisdom, even seeking the good of those who are hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ while still acknowledging an undercurrent of hostility towards the Lord Jesus Christ and thus those who follow him. You can note here how two discernments are necessary. There is a need to discern what a threat is. You need to be able to discern a dog or a pig, as it were. Again, we said that those are vicious threats, unclean. There are threats in this world. There is that which is dangerous in this world. But you also need to discern that there are true, precious elements in this world. He uses holy and pearl here as an image for that which is precious. He doesn't define what it is here. Later on, there are suggestive hints at what this might be. He calls the kingdom of heaven a pearl of great price. I think it's suggestive here that he's been consistently profiling how precious his children are. Are you not more valuable than the birds? Are you not more valuable than the flowers? I think you could develop this in either of those directions, the preciousness of the gospel, the holiness of the word of God, or the preciousness of his children and the holiness of his children. In either way, they're to be treated as such and not to be treated as something that the Lord disregards. We know this well, don't we? We know this well in our everyday lives. Children, have your parents taught you life in the kitchen or life in the workshop? When parents bring you into the kitchen, they're going to show you what an oven is and how it can be dangerous because it's hot. If they take you into the workshop, they're going to show you what a saw is and how it's dangerous because it's sharp. We have a responsibility to responsibly orient one another to the reality of this world. And the reality of Christians in this world is set forth by Christ as saying, you are my sheep and there are wolves. There are lions. There are pits. The world isn't safe. But if he tells us the world isn't safe and thus enjoins upon us a need for true discernment, he also wouldn't have us shrink into fear, would he? That would be the temptation, isn't it? It's oftentimes the temptation. It's oftentimes the reason why we respond with such cruelty to the world is because we're afraid. And so unless we have as the ballast for our true discernment of the threat, the promise that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world, you can be sure that you will respond in fear. Did you track with that? The need for true discernment is balanced by the promise that he who is in you is greater 
than he who is in the world. Or in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. We acknowledge the truth of the danger, but we acknowledge the supremacy of the shepherd in the same breath. And thus we're oriented in wisdom towards the one and confidence towards the other, such that our comportment can be in blamelessness towards those who would harm and in wisdom towards those who would harm. But I want you to notice an important difference before we transition into the judging. The difference between discerning and judging, there's an important early distinction that we get in true discernment and sinful judgment. Notice that if you discern that a certain animal is dangerous, you give it a wide berth. You don't provoke it. If you discern that there is something dangerous, you retreat in humility. You don't seek to stir it up with words of condemnation, as it were. In other words, we're not looking for a fight. We've seen this time and time again. That even in the face of a world that would devour, we're not the ones who are interested in a fight. And that fact alone attests to something different in us. A confidence, a gentleness, a meekness that is able to rise above the fray, as it were, and make a distinction between wise retreat and a necessary standing of one's ground. This is from our God. Remarkably, we see Christ demonstrating this everywhere in his life. When people came to him with an earnest question that was wrong-headed, he answered it earnestly. When people came to him trying to test him, he rebuked them, but then usually answered it for the benefit of others, interestingly. And when the fever pitch of man's sin reached an intensity in his trial, he didn't say a mumbling word. Wisdom. Purity. Innocence. This is our king, beloved. And he calls us to a similar comportment in a similar world. And we're confident that we can comport ourselves as such because our king has comported himself as such. And he pours his spirit upon us. So we seek this wisdom from above, which is peaceable and gentle and yields a harvest of righteousness. But if spiritual discernment is commanded here, we can also note that it receives far less attention than the Lord's address of our judgy hearts. So we'll consider next the sin of judging. What does it mean when Jesus commands us, do not judge? Have you thought about this? It's not the only place in Scripture where this commandment is issued. Paul writes in Romans 14:4, "Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another?" James writes, "Who are you to judge your neighbor?" You can feel what answer they anticipate. You also feel their indignation with those questions. There's an urgent warning in this. The Lord uses strong language here. 
So we must figure out what it means. Not to, it won't do it all to say, well, like I can judge, right? Like I need to judge, right? That, gave, that won't do it all because he's clearly concerned about something wrong that we are all prone to do and it's most egregious. So what is it? So we can start with asking the question, why does Jesus address this sin here? Why this sudden shift from don't worry about tomorrow, don't you dare judge? That seems abrupt. The link seems to be verse 33. If you go back just a little bit into chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. There's something about the sinful flesh that when it seeks righteousness, it does so by trying to highlight and magnify and talk about the failings of others. The sinful flesh seeks righteousness by trying to prove how unrighteous everyone else is. Good. <laughs> it's easier for us to show that we know what is right by condemning what is wrong about others than it is to actually do what is right ourselves. Somehow we think that righteousness seeking boils down to sin hunting. Jesus says, seek righteousness, and we hear, go find faults in others. This is not true righteousness. Make no mistake, Jesus sends us in faith in an earnest pursuit of true righteousness. That's just what he says. And as soon as he says that, he immediately warns us about the temptation of the flesh that will try to establish righteousness through the publicity and the attention that we bring to the failings, shortcomings, and sins of others. Do you feel this tendency in your heart? Can you recognize it anywhere in your comportment and disposition? If you can't, you're not listening. Or I'm doing a bad job of explaining it. Either one is possible. I grant you. I don't want to overlook the log in my eye. <laughs> we do well here to recall the prayer of the Pharisee. This is recorded in Luke's gospel. Do you remember this? The prayer of the Pharisee, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men, like this tax collector. I thank you, God, that I'm not like them. As Christians, we have that propensity to wrong-headedness. We can fall into the trap of thinking that perhaps I started in poverty, but I've somehow graduated to riches, and all these other impoverished sinners really need to be chastened by me, the wealthy. It's repugnant. Mm. So then what is judging? It is 
hypercriticism and fault seeking. It's that eagerness and excitement over finding wrong, weakness, failure in others, reading in it a confirmation that you really are better, the willingness to read others' failings in the worst possible light, the hastiness in which we form opinions about others, and the readiness with which we share that opinion freely in the church. And we are all guilty of it. Calvin calls it that excessive eagerness, cruelty, or even curiosity in judging one another. J.C. Ryle calls it our readiness to blame others for small offenses, our habit of passing rash judgment, our disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of others and to make the worst of them. Another pastor says it's that inclination to discover and severely condemn the faults, real or imaginary, of others while passing lightly over our own. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's a certain perverse delight and satisfaction in seeking out or discovering the faults of others. And if that tendency weren't bad enough, we dress the whole thing up in Christian clothing. We convince ourselves that doing such things are really a concern for the other person. That emerges from the picture, doesn't it? Let, let, me, let me help you with that speck. I just, I'm just here to help. And in helping, we destroy. That ought to ring painfully true to your experience. I've never met anyone who has torn down a house of God who didn't think they were helping or doing what was right. I've never met a gossip who wasn't convinced that their conduct wasn't really Christian concern. I've never met someone who engaged in constant ill-speaking of another Christian who wasn't convinced that that was what the situation really required. I'm just holding up a mirror. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> we return to that devastating capacity of sin to blind us to self-deceive. This text comes for us all, doesn't it? Calvin hangs his head. There is no one among us who is so kind and understanding as he ought to be towards his brothers. There is no one among us who is as kind and understanding as he ought to be towards his fellow Christian. And that's why this is so heinous, isn't it? And the reason it's so heinous from one angle is also the source of our great joy. This is not how Christ deals with us. This is not how God deals with us. God has not dealt with any of us in this way. Have all your failures been found out? Have you never received the benefit of the doubt? Have you never been the object of strained understanding and forbearance? I assure you that God has not dealt with you the way your iniquity deserves. 
I assure you that the way that we are prone to deal with one another in our sinful flesh is not the way that God has dealt with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has covered our sins. He has extended unto us long-suffering and patient forbearance. He overlooks and does not visit every one of our failures upon us. Who hasn't received this treatment from the one who is the judge? And that's why this is so shameful. It's a return to that simple and elegant confirmation in scripture that we have been the recipients of an infinite compassion, of an infinite mercy, of an infinite patience, every single one of us. And at bottom, that must needs color how we view one another. He would send us running from this sin as that which is most unfitting to a child of God who has received mercy. So we have to consider the danger of judging. This is a pretty harsh passage. I mean, if you, there's really not, uh, like it's basically, he speaks harshly, urgently against this sinful tendency. First, he shows us the foolishness of such posture, such fault-seeking, such hyper-criticism. This comes out in verses 3 through 5. It's a very vivid vignette. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. This portrait would be comical if it weren't so destructive. You picture a person just walking around with a two-by-four in their eye with a sign over them that says, expert eye surgeon. The proper response is, you're kidding, right? Like, this is laughable. But it's not comic, it's grotesque. And there's a difference between those two things. Something that's grotesque is hideous. There's something ugly about this in its comedy. And it's the folly of it. It feels like some of those pictures in Proverbs, the lazy man who puts his hand in a jar and then just gets too tired halfway through. He's like, I'm just going to leave it there. I can't bring it out again. And you're like, oh, that's ridiculous. He's like, yeah, so is all of your laziness. (laughs) The picture of the youth who's looking for pleasure And finds the gates of Sheol. Accomplishing the opposite of what you set out to accomplish. It's foolishness. And it's humbling. He profiles the folly of such endeavors. And the folly of such endeavors very quickly gives way to the danger of such endeavors. First, it's dangerous to the person with the speck. (laughs) This doesn't take a ton of imagination. How is this eye surgery going to go? When you get Mr. 2 by 4 in there trying to pry out a speck, something insignificant, something small, something you really got to be looking for to find, something that you're going to need clear sight to remove, Mr. 2 by 4 is going to destroy this other person's sight. He's not going to restore vision. He's going to destroy his brother. This is what Luke brings out in the parallel passage in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel. Can a blind man lead a blind man? 
Will they not both fall into the pit? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not take notice of the log that is in yours? He highlights the danger of both of them. They're both going down. How many times in our midst has someone in need of kindness received the cruelty of a Christian and it's driven them from the house of God? And make no mistake, God is sovereign and overrules even those things for his mysterious purposes. But make no mistake, our responsibility isn't removed. When that happens, it is to our great shame and discredit. And that's what Christ profiles here. But more than the danger to the one with the speck is the danger to the one who presumes that they're the one to remove the speck while they have a log. That's what he presses home. With the judgment you use, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. This is a grave warning, is it not? Again, don't get lost in the theological weeds here. Just hear the warning. Get away from this. Run from this. When you see this creep up in your heart, flee to Christ. That's the takeaway. Don't immerse yourself in a theological conundrum. Hear the warning. When you see that flash in your heart, say, Ha! Ah, I need Christ. That's the effect that this text is supposed to have. In one sense, this is just that old teaching. You reap what you sow. Make no mistake, that's true. Paul says it. It's not the only thing that's true, but it's true. You reap what you sow. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Galatians chapter 6. The Lord teaches similarly here. Don't be surprised if men deal with you in the way that you deal with others. If you are exacting, hypercritical, eager to find fault, slow to understanding, slow to forbearance, don't be surprised if you find yourself living in an exacting, hypercritical, fault-seeking, compassionless world. And here's the kicker, you're in desperate need of all of those things. So why are we so reluctant to extend them? Hypocrites. And that's why he calls us hypocrites. This is the only place where he calls activity in the community by this name. Hypocrites, he says. I think our hypocrisy runs two ways in this. Partly it's because we do these things pretending like we're doing them out of a place in love and of love and concern. Hypocrites, you know you're just out to establish your own righteousness hypocrite every denouncing of an error every cruel posture which frames your heart as you correct someone you're not out for their good hypocrite he says disgust fills his voice here you can hear it hypocrite There's a call for honesty here with ourselves. There's at least a call for the recognition that we have this in us. That every stumble, every weakness, every error that manifests itself in the household of God from one of our brothers and sisters, we are tempted to act like a dog towards them. And seize upon that to assure ourselves that we really are better and cloak that whole endeavor in the guise of compassion and concern. Hypocrite. 
But the hypocrisy also shows up because as Christians, we confess that God hasn't visited this upon us. The judge hasn't judged us. Or rather, he has judged us in the Lord Jesus Christ as a display of mercy, compassion, understanding that is really quite astonishing. That he has chosen to view our enmity as weakness. What? Go to Romans 5. Grapple with that. When did Christ die for you? When you were weak, it says. Wait, when I was weak? Yeah, while you were still sinners. Wait, that's how he's choosing to read that? My deranged enmity towards the one who has done me good, he chooses to view through the lens of compassion such that he forgives me in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we exact this from others? Hypocrites. So the more terrifying warning here isn't man's going to deal with you if you deal this way with men. The more terrifying warning is God's going to deal with you in this way if you deal in this way with men. Run from this. Run from this. This rises to that level that says, look, judgment without mercy receives no mercy. That's what James says. That's what Christ essentially says in Matthew 18 to the one who doesn't extend mercy, neither can he reasonably expect mercy. Why? Not because our mercy earns God's mercy, but our mercilessness shows that we've never tasted God's mercy. It shows that we're utterly oblivious to the depth of our need for mercy. Have you tasted God's mercy? A great way to evaluate whether you've tasted God's mercy, ask yourself, am I merciful? Is there anything recognizable as mercy in me? Beloved, if not, howl, moan, repent, cling to Christ until a sense of your need for mercy dawns and see if that doesn't Posture you in mercy towards others. And that's where he leaves us, the cure for judging. Thankfully, there's a remedy. He wouldn't leave us in such a dreadful condition as his followers. There is a remedy. Christ is the eye physician. Everywhere, he does wonders for sight. He puts LASIK to shame. LASIK can take my blurry world and make it clear. He can take darkness and make it light. That's what he does throughout. He says, I can heal the eyes. I can heal the eyes. I can take out that log so you can see rightly. Come to me. See your need for me. And that's the cure, beloved. The one who appeared as the mercy of God, bringing sight to the blind, is the one who stands before you saying, I can help you to see right. And the first thing that you see is that apart from mercy, you're lost, beloved. Apart from God's grace, you're lost, beloved. Have you given room to that pernicious and diabolical thought that you stand before the Lord in favor on some other ground than his mercy? 
It's a relentless, creeping Charlie of a tendency in our hearts to think that we've somehow carved out some ground for us to stand before him, which we've done. And thus we have a basis for judging what others have failed to do. Beloved, a debtor to mercy alone, you remain. And it's only in the light of the reception of mercy that we are going to be postured to actually help others in need of mercy. Because the truth is we are called to help one another. The removal of the beam here doesn't seem to be, hey, make sure you get every sin that's bigger than the person you're going to correct out of your life. That's not what it seems to be saying. As long as you're not an objectively worse sinner than the person you're correcting, don't worry about it. You're fine. Perform that surgery. It can be tempting to read it that way, right? Rather, the beam seems to be self-righteousness. The beam seems to be the hypercritical spirit. The beam seems to be that utter obliviousness to your need for mercy from God. And thus your utter inability to show mercy towards another in need of mercy. So the call to remove the beam here is a call to refresh yourself concerning your many failures, beloved. (laughs) In many ways, it is a call to accurately assess, accurately assess your heart, find there much that is unsound. Accurately reflect your Christian comportment, find if there isn't much that is wayward. Accurately assess your own constancy, find if you are not frequently faltering. And let those findings drive you to the one who extends mercy to you in all of that. And let that pattern be well established before you address anyone else in their supposed need. And by the way, your brothers and sisters are likely more in need of your encouragement than your correction. That's an excellent litmus test for this. How much of your time, energy, words have been spent encouraging, building up, praying for the person that you're about to go correct? If the answer is next to none, maybe you hold off on correcting them because maybe it doesn't come from a place of true concern. Beloved, the only way we're going to be arranged towards one another in kindness and compassion in a world that truly is dangerous is by continually reflecting upon how God has dealt with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you hear this text? Can you feel this text? Can you feel something of your need for this king? Can you walk away humbled, but also encouraged that he has not cast us off? I hope that you can. Join me in prayer. Our great God, we give you thanks that you haven't dealt with us as our sins deserve. We do ask that you would bring our actions towards one another in conformity with the gospel, Lord. 
that you would supply us our need for true discernment, a discernment of our own heart, our own flesh, a spiritual sight to see the Lord Jesus Christ as the great physician, to see our brothers and sisters as those fellow sinners and fellow children who need the Lord Jesus Christ just as we do. Father, create in us clean hearts, renew right spirits that in truth we might be a family of light in a world covered in darkness. That true testimony may be born to those who are lost. That there is love to be found, truth to be found, wisdom to be found, righteousness to be found, and it is in the household of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.